Welcome to Sunday School. <clears throat> it's good to see you all. Let us start with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our good Heavenly Father, we thank you for today and we thank you for uh, your mercies with us. Uh, thank you that you have given us this day where we can uh, rest physically, but more importantly, rest spiritually. Uh, we pray that you may bless us, uh, bless uh, this time as we consider uh, the concepts of the church next to the concept of the kingdom, and uh, grant that as we do so, may we be uh, uh, helped by your Holy Spirit so we may understand uh, better the nature of your church, rejoice in it, and uh, live for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, um, as promised, this morning we are going to see the difference between the church and the kingdom of God. And uh, uh, if you, so just some preliminary remarks. Remember that I told you that, <coughs> excuse me, um, that's not improving. <coughs> Remember that I told you that um, the distinction between church as an institution and church as an organism is a very recent one. It started in, in the Netherlands with uh, Kuiper and Babing and uh, modernity opposing enlightenment thinking and uh, revolutionary politics and so on. Uh, and the product of that is also the distinction and the more in-depth analysis of what the kingdom of God is. There are some traces here and there uh, with Calvin and other reformers. Uh, even our confession of faith uh, has two articles for the church. Uh, 25, one about the universal church that you will have, uh, you will see there, and 25.2 with the visible church. And by the end of the article, it says, and is the kingdom of God. Uh, they just throw it right there. But there is not a lot of um, deliberation and thinking about what does that mean? How do we understand one and the other? And so uh, it it's just what I'm trying to say is everything in, the, in theology, as I've said before, uh, develops and, and changes uh, with respect to how we understand certain truths and how do we improve them. We don't change everything, but we uh, learn to improve them in different ways. Uh, think about, again, uh, uh, think about doctrine of God or doctrine of the Trinity. We don't we don't understand persons uh, and, uh, uh, what's the other word? Um, no, sorry, we don't understand personae and um, hypostasis until later on, like two centuries later when they are fighting for those two terms. And finally, we were like, okay, persons is okay. Because for the Eastern world, person, was uh, was the term or personae was the term uh, used uh, by the actors to go into the theater and act, and then in order to change characters, they just remove their masks, put another one, and then it was a different character. So it was not a different uh, being who was there; it was a different mask. And so when the Eastern Eastern Church heard the word personae, they were like, oh, that's modelism, that's heresy. 
And so they started to fight because of that. But then when they get together and they understand the terms, they go, oh, persona, it's okay. And from there we get the term one in essence, three in persons. But it took years and it took um, people digging into scriptures, digging into philosophy, digging into the terms that we use in order to understand uh, the nature of uh, the, the words and the theology that we are going to use to refer to these mysteries. In the same way with the church and the kingdom of God, uh, something that was highly undeveloped by Rome was doctrine of the Holy Spirit and doctrine of the church because Rome had become basically uh, a one more kingdom, a one more nation instead of being a spiritual kingdom. So Calvin and others start to wonder about that and start to develop a different ecclesiology. But then you have the state still trying to go over the church, trying to control things, and uh, it's not the ideal thing. So uh, all the cultural, historical, and everything, materials, um, are ready to germinate right there in the 19th and 20th century to understand this idea of the kingdom of God and the church in a better way. Um, part of that, and maybe you will, you will be surprised to hear this, maybe not, maybe the ones who are here into the recording will be, I don't know. Um, but the one who um, drinks very deeply from neo-Calvinist theology, Kuiper and Babing, and are friends with him, is Gerhardus Voss, which is an American, Dutch-American Presbyterian, uh, who, who became Presbyterian, I should say, uh, who, who was teacher at Princeton, uh, professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. And uh, he is uh, the father of um, biblical theology in our circles. But the biggest treatment about Kingdom of God and Church is Gerhardus Voss. And he's the one who has like a little booklet like this thick called uh, The Kingdom and the Church uh, by him. And he has the treatment about this. If you want to dig deeper on that also, uh, uh, Herman Bavink has uh, a little essay of like 35 pages uh, called The Kingdom of God, The Highest Good. And if you want something else, J.I. Bavink, his uh, nephew, he has another book called uh, Between Worlds. A radical vision for the kingdom. And then Kuiper has a whole volume on uh, the church. Um, and then uh, um, I think that's it. Well, and the other books like Robert Lethem's Systematics and so on, who basically follow uh, their reasoning. Uh, I'm saying all of that because you may have heard all of these things before, but maybe you didn't know where they come from. And I'm telling you where they are coming from. And uh, um, if you want to know where Kuiper and Babin got their stuff from, then you go and read the Leiden synopsis, uh, 16th century, 17th century systematic theology. And if you want to know where do they get their, their stuff from, then you go back and read the Canons of the Ord and Heidelberg Catechism and Calvin and so on. Uh, if you read, if you read uh, um, Calvin, Calvin's Institutes, and then you read um, the Heidelberg Catechism, I was struck by the fact that many of the entire sentences of Calvin are in the Heidelberg Catechism. So that was kind of cool. Anyhow, so uh, the church and the kingdom of God. Um, so my, my proposal is that church and kingdom are two different 
uh, concepts. Those are normally confused. People say the church is the kingdom of God. And there is a sense in which you could understand church and kingdom in the same, uh, in being the same thing, and I will explain how. But generally speaking, a kingdom of God is a bigger concept. Uh, but what has happened recently is that kingdom has been used as a concept that uh, is or should be contained inside the church only. So when you talk about the church, you are talking about the kingdom. And if you are talking about the kingdom, you are talking about the church. That's the, the modern, I think, uh, misunderstanding of what these two concepts are. So today we, were, we are going to unpack that a little bit. I thought we will tackle this in one Sunday. Surprise, surprise. We are not going to do that. It's going to be two or three. I don't know. Uh, so we are going to, first of all, see the concepts of what kingdom and church are. And we have seen what church is. And then we will run through scriptures to see the evidence for the concept of the kingdom. I remembered one more book. If you want a really good biblical theology of the kingdom of God, then uh, Beale's uh, um, biblical theology of the Old and New Testament, he traces the concept of the kingdom of God uh, in his book. This thick, um, but, but it's good. Uh, and um, Herman Ritterbus's um, um, Herman Ritterbus's The Coming of the Kingdom. Um, that's a more accessible volume, maybe. Um, and he traces the the uh, history of the kingdom of God too. Uh, and surprise, surprise, um, Bill and Ritterbus, both of them are citing Vos and Babing and Kuiper. Um, so nothing new there, uh, and Ritterboss is 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 product of the Dutch the Dutch uh, neo Calvinist tradition. Anyhow, so uh, the concept of the kingdom of God has often been misunderstood or become problematic. Uh, so especially, I don't know if you have heard this, uh, but especially um, in uh, liberal circles like in the PC USA. Uh, they love, they love to talk about the idea of the kingdom of God. Uh, so they, they say things like the church exists here to bring about the kingdom of God. And that sounds super cool. Um, uh, it's something that even us will say. Because when we are preaching, when we are administering the sacraments, when hearts are being transformed, literally the kingdom of God is being brought upon God's people. It's true. But they don't mean that. They mean uh, the church is here to take care of every social program that exists. So, you know, that's why they will have, you know, people. Um, I recently saw a lady who is uh, graduating from or uh, did a PhD on uh, Princeton University. And it was on Calvin or something like that. But she is like uh, uh, preaching and she's saying, this is why Calvin is racist. And I was like, okay, here we go. Um, and uh, this is why, you know, I have discovered that being black and woman and, and Presbyterian uh, empowers me to uh, support social causes because that's bringing the kingdom of God. And I was like, wow, that's not it. That's not, not the kingdom of God as it's represented in the scriptures. 
So people like the PCUSA love to use the, the concept of the kingdom of God, precisely because it will uh, further their social efforts. And that's why they have feminists and, and activists and other kinds of people preaching in their pulpits, because that's the understanding that they have about the uh, kingdom of God. Does that mean that they are entirely mistaken? No, there is a grain of truth in that. It has been taken to the uh, left too much, but, uh, yeah, you're left. I did that right. Um, but um, that's, that's, that's a problem. Now, uh, there are other problems with the concept of the kingdom of God. Some theologians of more recent decades, remember I said this is a problem for the 20th century. So it's not a surprise that we are struggling with that uh, idea in the 20th century. Uh, um, especially after two world wars, right? Um, you have theologians struggling with, okay, what's going on? What happened with the project that we have? Uh, 19th century was supposed to uh, have progress and we were moving mankind towards uh, uh, a better place and everything was going better. Paradise on earth, we are going to make it. And suddenly you have two wars where uh, we killed each other and everyone died and it was horrible and and we discovered that humanity was not as, as nice and as cool as we thought. We were not as good. And so we start to uh, fight and struggle with that idea again. Karl Barth struggles with that. Um, Moltmann struggles with that. And, and, and others too. So you have like two kinds of responses to that. The first one is kingdom of God is uh, equalized with the earthly realm. So you have liberation theology with Gutierrez in Latin America. Uh, it may not seem like a huge influence, a little priest in Peru who decides to have this brilliant idea of the, of the liberation theology, but it expanded so much that now we have a pope who is a big proponent of liberation theology and has infected uh, some uh, circles even in the churches here in the U.S. That's why we are talking about him. So Gutierrez, for him, the kingdom of God is the place where the poor are already there just because they are poor. And so God came, he says, for the poor. That's why Jesus is always concerned about the disenfranchised, the poor, those who are small, uh, not because they need to repent of their sins, but because of the fact that uh, they are poor, they deserve everything. That's the idea. So if you are poor, uh, congratulations, you made it. You don't need to do anything else. And the church has to care for you and do everything for you so you can, um, so, so the kingdom of God can be displayed in that way in your life. Uh, so poor equals saved equals kingdom of God for them. Uh, and it's already represented on, on those who are disenfranchised. On the other hand, uh, dominion theology uh, it, here, the kingdom of God is a concept that is equated with what we like the most. So um, think about uh, uh, love for your country. That's good. It's normal. It's part of us. Uh, we all have a certain degree of love for a country. But then when you love your country too much, then kingdom of God becomes uh, the hobby horse that you jump in in order to say, uh, we need to make America Christian again. Uh, and then uh, every political uh, program that the church has to run has to be a political program. 
in order to make America a Christendom, uh, one of those kingdoms and rules of old where everything was wonderful. Do you remember Charlemagne? How he was like beating up the Muslims and destroying them? That's what we need. We need, to, we need America to be like uh, Charlemagne's empire. Well, you can't go back to that time. Uh, and uh, you don't even speak Latin anymore. So it's, it's an impossibility. And uh, political circumstances are not even the same anymore. Uh, not even geographical circumstances are, are the same anymore. So, uh, but it becomes, it becomes something that people want to. Um, uh, and uh, and some, some people um, are working actively for that even today. Uh, think about Moscow, Idaho, and Doug Wilson and his connections and everything that he's doing, trying to make um, Moscow, Idaho, like a little Christendom city, and then expanding through, uh, through all the United States. Um, if you want to learn more about it, there is a magazine from uh, Mid-America Reform Seminary in the back. You can take one. There is a good article there. That's the reason why I ask it uh, from the seminary. There is a good article there uh, struggling with that idea by Alan Strange and showing you why that's not good. It's part of a dominionist uh, theology that has never been part of the, of the, the, the theology of the church. Um, so you have those who compare the kingdom of God with the earthly realm. So kingdom of God is everything that we see, and uh, we, need to, we need to have that right now. On the other hand, you have the other side of the spectrum, some that have equated the kingdom of God only with moral things, only with, uh, yeah, moral is a better word than spiritual, with um, ethics. So you have the ethical school. If you're wondering where this, the, this uh, ethical school comes, it comes from Kant, uh, um, the philosopher. Because remember, for Kant, everything is a moral imperative. So you are a good person because being a good person is what is normal uh, on you and it, what is required of you, what good morals require of you. So um, the church got that from Kant and post-Kantians, the, uh, theologians and philosophers adopted that idea. And they said, you know what? We don't, we don't need the church. We don't need Jesus. We don't need anything. What we need is to be good moral people. That's what we need. And so in order to be that, because what Jesus came to do was be a good example for us. That's all that he is. He's a good example for us. He loved the poor. He loved prostitutes. He loved the publicans. He loved the tax collectors. That's what we are called to do. And in order to strive for that, we are going to mold or uh, we are going to form our wills to move into that direction of goodness, of being moral people. And how do we do that? We define things. We have concepts and we follow them. And so the, 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 the theologians, the post-Kantians and the ethicals, they, all that they did was like, okay, what is goodness? Well, goodness is what uh, uh, brings us comfort and, uh, and a sensation of happiness. Okay, good. So um, what kind of morals can we have? Well, obviously, I don't want to be killed, so don't kill me. That's good. 
all right, and I won't kill you. Okay, that's good too. Um, and, and we will strive for it, right? And so that's the way they started to develop that ethical school. And by the end, in the, in the 19th and, and beginning of the 20th century, these are the guys who are saying, we don't need the church. Because if the purpose of the Christian life is to be good people, that can be done by the state. Because the state can take care of the poor, the state can take care of our society, the state can um, replace the church, and the state is the one who puts the rules. So if we uh, make sure that everyone uses bicycles, don't dump trash in the, in the streets, and uh, be nice neighbors to each other, that's it. We no longer need the church. Um, the church is obsolete. So they were, they were calling uh, for the kingdom of God as this moral concept where everything that we need is simply be good people. And that's it. On the other hand, you have the more orthodox movement of pietism, uh, but they too defined pietism, uh, excuse me, kingdom of God, too narrowly. It's only spiritual. It's only um, about the faithful uh, treasures in heaven, uh, the faithful and the treasures in heaven that we are storing for ourselves. So what is going to happen to this world? We don't care. How can we serve this world being salt and light? Don't care about the world. We are not salt and light. In fact, the best way of being salt and light is abandoning TRPC, going to the mountains every Sunday and having like little mini churches groups, like uh, small groups, what we call today small groups uh, or, or cellular groups. And, and there, then and there, that's the true life of the church, where you are in the small groups and, and cherishing each other and living the Christian life, uh, but just among us. And then don't intermingle with anyone else, because if you do, you are, going to, uh, you are going to fail in your call to be holy to the Lord. And why care about the world anyway? God is going to come, destroy it, you know, it's, it's going to uh, blow it away, and He is going to have us in, an, in a different world. He is going to recreate everything. So that's, that's pietism. Um, I don't know if you were tracing with this, but some of those are very common in our churches today, uh, reformed and non-reformed churches. Uh, some of them uh, uh, think, you know, Christianity is about being good people, right? If we are good enough, we, we got it. Uh, if we are not good enough, then we try to do better right? Uh, but that's the purpose. Others are kind of pietists and think the life of the church is lived the best in small groups. And if we don't have small groups, then we are, we are uh, uh, a dead church. Um, that's, that's a new development again. That's a new concept. It wasn't like that uh, uh, before. So those are kind of misunderstandings of the kingdom of God, what the kingdom of God is. And even then, there is a grain of truth in all of those. That's why it's so sticky. That's why it's so popular. Uh, if everything were, were a lie, do you really think uh, uh, people will believe those? No. Satan and our errors and our thinking is always attractive to us, sinful thinking, because we have a grain of truth. Uh, think about when you, have a, when you want uh, to buy a new car. I'm saying car. I would normally say book, but you don't buy books. Uh, <laughs> And you go, yeah, I have had 
this car for 10 years already. And it's kind of time, isn't it? And it will be better to have a newer one. Like, oh, look at that. Like, it has like four wheel traction, and they have an incentive for me to have it. And at the same time, you know, your family can't afford it. Uh, and you go, but that's okay. Everyone will be happy with a new car. I'm sure of it. And so you have a good desire and you are twisting it uh, because you really needed it. Um, that's how we work. So uh, we have the same thing with the kingdom of God. It's good that we preserve orthodoxy, right? We want to be orthodox. We want to be faithful to God. We want our confession to, to, to continue speaking to us because we don't want to forget about the good truths that God has given to us. But we are going to remove ourselves from the world. No one else can touch our confession. Only us. No one else. And we are the elect people. We are the exiles. Uh, so we are going to behave like exiles, not having relationship or intermingling with anyone. Well, that's very selfish. Isn't our confession there to be proclaimed? Because it's an amazing deposit of truth, faithful to scriptures that has to be shared with other people. Um, the doors of the church are open. If God wants to save them, he will bring them. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to close the doors of the church. I'm not going to open the doors of the church either. If God wants to save them, he will bring them. No need for me to evangelize or anything. That's, that's what I'm talking about. All right. Um, away with the world. Let's preserve what we can until everyone else dies, and then we will conquer. No, that's not how it works. So my proposal this morning is that we need to understand that the kingdom of God is spiritual, eternal, invisible, but finds its partial realization, and that's important, here on earth and is continually moving towards future consummation in Jesus Christ. It's both. It's already here, but not yet. Uh, the obvious also should be stated. It's God's kingdom. Um, so let me just... Um, uh, divide that a little bit. The kingdom of God is a spiritual, eternal, invisible, but it finds its partial realization here on earth. So it's true. It consists on a, on a heavenly spiritual treasure, and yet it comes down from heaven to your hearts. It's already in you, and then it is manifested here on earth through the things that you do. If you become, by the action of the Holy Spirit, a better father, Think how that affects your children. If you become a better sufferer, sufferer, think about how that affects your neighbors, your friends, and so on. And the kingdom of God is coming in that sense. And yet, it doesn't depend on you. It doesn't come because you are doing such a great job, because we are never doing a great job. Uh, but it doesn't come because of you. That's why it's a waiting, moving towards the future consummation where Jesus Christ is finally coming and bringing the kingdom with himself. Church, as good as that is, never brings the kingdom in itself and by her own efforts. Uh, that never happens. It's not in the scriptures. It's Jesus who brings his kingdom. It's Jesus who consummates it. Uh, and, and even if you were to say super optimistic, right, no, we can make it. We are going to do it. And look around us. The, the, 
everything is going well for the church right now. Like we are popular, the church, uh, the church uh, um, rejoices in the fact that we are asked to go to the Congress and pray, and we have our faithful pastors there and everything. Like think about that. And then, yeah, you know, good people and the state can be, you know, more supportive of the church. Everything is going great. Uh, even then, uh, that's not the consummation of the kingdom. That's not what Jesus is going to bring finally on this earth. And again, there was and there were times in the history of the church where that was exactly the case. And do you know what happened with the church? We got fat and lazy and thought our work was done and we forgot about it and heresies appeared. And, and we started to go away from the truths of the gospel. So it awaits the future consummation in Jesus Christ. Uh, and then again, the obvious should be stated again is God's kingdom. It's not your kingdom, it's not my kingdom, it's not my will, your will be done, is Jesus's will be done, God's will be done. Uh, it's a good and desirable, desirable kingdom because God is there. Have you heard people say, oh, I want to go to heaven? I'm like, me too. Why do you want to go to heaven? Oh, because, you know, it's going to be so amazing. Uh, and, and they start to tell you what is so amazing about heaven. There will be joy and we will sing and uh, there will be no more suffering and we will be happy. And, and I'm looking forward like to see uh, creation from a different perspective, if that's true, I don't know. Um, and then we will fly, I don't know. And then, you know, oh, so amazing, like pool parties uh, uh, and, and things like that. But it's, I, and I myself, I'm, I'm at fault of this. I am still yet to hear someone who says, I want to go to heaven because Jesus is there. Because that's the reason heaven is heaven. Jesus is there, right? That's why uh, the new Jerusalem that is coming down from heaven in uh, Revelation 21 and 22 is the new Jerusalem and is beautiful is because God is there. Uh, you can have no more suffering, no more joy, pool parties, uh, the perfect tacos, I don't know, uh, everything. But if Jesus is not there, that's not heaven. That's hell. And so uh, it's a good kingdom because God is there. He rules it, he maintains it, and he advances it. It's our highest good precisely because of that. God and God alone is man's highest good. If you are seeking after something else, then uh, um, which we do very often, uh, repent and receive God's forgiveness. And he will. He doesn't take uh, very long to forgive us. Um, Babing, this is from the kingdom of God, the highest good. The kingdom of God as the highest good consists in the unity, the inclusion, the totality of all moral goods of earthly and heavenly, spiritual and physical, eternal and temp temporal goods. So notice his concept of the kingdom of God. He says it's the highest good because on it we see creation, uh, redemption and everything everything as it should be once again. In the kingdom of God, 
God will, will, in the consummation of the kingdom, God will look at us and look at creation again, and he will say once again, it is very good. It's like not literally going back to the garden because there is development even there, but even in the end, he will be like, this is the purpose for which I have created everything. So nature in harmony, animals in harmony with each other, uh, our cognitive uh, and emotional abilities in harmony with our bodies, and then all of that in harmony with who God is. So whatever we desire, whatever we are doing, is always in harmony with God's will. Can you imagine that? Like that's, that's really impressive and that's pretty cool because today we go, ah, I kind of want, uh, uh, I kind of want to, to eat a taco, but that's going to hurt your belly. You're going to die. You are sick. I don't care. It's a taco. It's always good. So we are always kind of having this disconnection. We read the scriptures and we go, what is all of that about? Have you wondered why is that? Because we are sinners. But in heaven, there will be no more clouds, no more like um, uh, dim visions of God. We will be like, oh, this is perfect. We are seeing God perfectly. We understand his will perfectly. No more, no more clouds in our minds. Uh, that's, that's kingdom of heaven. And as we work our way in this world, uh, the capacitation, the um, Holy Spirit in us, moving in our hearts, transforms our lives in such a way that we start living in harmony with our, cal or with our calling and vocations. Does that mean that we do it perfectly? No. Be careful with that. I'm, I'm trying to be careful with that myself. We never do it perfectly, but harmony starts in our hearts by the fact that in Jesus Christ we are truly humans once again. So his work in our hearts transforms the way we engage with other people and, and everything. I mean, you, 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 you do things that you shouldn't do, and then you repent. What is that? Oh, that's how I am. No, no, <laughs> that's not who we are. Who we are is like, you know what? Yes, I screamed at her. She deserved it. She was messing with me, and I'm the victim here. Like, after all, why wasn't breakfast ready? She should know, right? And, and what's going on? Like, oh, I need to be ready and breakfast was not ready. I couldn't believe this. So I should be very angry at her. Shouting was, was a, small, a small measure. That's who we are. Uh, in Jesus Christ, we go, no, I was very selfish. Should have helped, and I didn't. I'm going to repent before her or before my kids, or before my grandkids, or, you know, whatever. Uh, that's, that's the action of the Holy Spirit. It's the new life that is already in you, and not yet. It's a manifestation of the kingdom. Uh, on the church, on the other hand, and notice the difference in concepts, uh, we believe that the Son of God, through His Spirit and Word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, preserves for Himself a community, chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community, I am and always be, uh, will be a living member. Uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, the Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head, of, their, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now, 
I wanted to uh, leave a cliffhanger there because maybe you are wondering, okay, so what's the difference? I'm not going to tell you until the end. Um, so we will see what's the difference later on. Uh, but before that, I wanted to explore the idea of the kingdom of God in the whole of the scriptures. Is the idea of the kingdom of God even biblical? Uh, is it there? And if it is, then where? And that's what we are going to explore right now. Do you have any questions before we go in there? No? Maybe some of you were wondering, like, where is Christian going to open the scriptures? We are going to do it right here. Um, the, the idea of kingdom of God in the scriptures. Um, so the most important notion and mention of the kingdom of God and the place where we find uh, the concept of the kingdom most poignantly at first is in Jesus' words. Uh, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember, Matthew is a Jew. He is writing to Jews. Uh, he is never going to use the name of God. That's why he uses a replacement, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, but he means the kingdom of God. And this is like the biggest key that we have. Uh, the way Jesus speaks seems to directly relate to the expectation of people in those days. In other words, people were waiting for the kingdom of, of God. That's why Jesus can go, the kingdom of God has arrived. And people actually understand what that means. There was an expectation. Uh, can you imagine Jesus uh, or someone coming to preach here for us, a pastor or whatever? Uh, and he goes, um, repent and believe because I have brought you good news. I brought you ayahuasca. And all of you go like, what? What is that? And he's acting like this is the best in the world, like ayahuasca. And this is, this is the good thing for the church and so on. And you go like, what is he talking about? Uh, well, in the same way with Jesus. If Jesus didn't know the expectations of the people, if this were not something that the people were expecting God to do, then it doesn't make sense for Jesus to say, repent and believe for the kingdom of God has arrived. People will be like, what? Kingdom of God? What is that? Like, we never heard of that, Jesus. What are you talking about? But no one says that. You know why? Because there was an expectation. They were waiting for it. People were like, God, bring your kingdom. How do we know that that, that was the expectation? First of all, I already told you, Jesus said, said so. Second of all, the concept is all over the place in the Old Testament. Uh, the wording kingdom of God in itself is not present. So if you go to, from Genesis to um, Malachi, you will rarely find it. There are some Psalms, God is king, let the earth rejoice, uh, or, or um, um, other, other Psalms that speak about God uh, as a king. Think about Psalm 2, right? Um, those are uh, very, very uh, present. And yet the phrase kingdom of God doesn't appear there. Um, the concept, however, is there. And there is a difference between one and the other. Uh, one thing is to find kingdom of God as such in itself in the Old Testament. Another thing is to find the concept. If you find one or the other, means that it exists. Just because you cannot find, oh, but the Bible in the Old Testament never, just rarely says kingdom of God. Uh, therefore, it's not such a big concept. Well, no, it is. Precisely because the content of that phrase 
is all over the place. And that's what I'm trying to show you. I'm going to try to show you right now. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2, for example, speak about, and listen to this because it's really cool, speak about the realm that God creates uh, and, and ordains and orders. And then in that realm, God makes a special place in which he puts Adam and Eve. It's a representative. In fact, in, in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, we hear about, uh, Gen that's Genesis 1, 20, 28, and God blessed them, that is humanity, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What is that but God giving orders to um, Adam to represent God as a king. You have dominion. You rule the earth in my name. So God is given um, another king, so to speak, so he can reflect God's kingship. So the idea is already there. You have a king, God. You have a representative, Adam. Uh, and then you have a realm that he is to care for. Uh, in, in the name of the king, the whole cosmos. So already in Genesis, you have the idea of kingdom, which is all-encompassing. Not just Adam's soul. Uh, let me just be a little stupid and maybe a, a clown a little bit. Uh, but God doesn't say to Adam, um, take care of your soul. And please, 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 don't care about animals or fish or plants, don't worry about that. All that I want you to do is to be praying every single day, and then uh, don't worry, everything is okay. Because um, in the end, Eden is just trash. I'm gonna ditch it and make an, a new one. That's not what God says. Uh, he has orders for very physical things. Be fruitful and multiply means that they are going to have babies and increase. I don't know what, I don't know if that's non-physical. In fact, it's very physical. Um, they have to multiply themselves, make more images of themselves. And then they need to subdue creation. They have to have dominion over, over everything that God, God has created. So God's plan is already there to have the kingdom of God uh, um, displayed, uh, which encompasses more than their souls. So we see, um, even, we even see government, uh, Adam. We even see community, Eve. And we even see culture. They need to tend the garden. Do you know where the word, the word uh, culture comes from? From, yeah, from cultivating. Yeah, exactly. So culture in its more rudimentary forms um, is nothing else than cultivating the earth. It has developed, of course, because everything in this world has the potential to develop. That's how God has made us. Um, but we have everything already there. Um, uh, man has been placed in the garden in order to care for it and to extend it. Um, and as I said, he exercises dominion. So in that sense, the kingdom of God precedes the fall. There is already kingdom before there is a church. Did you notice that? Uh, church exists after Genesis 3.15. Because what do you need to do in order to be part of the church? You need to believe in Jesus. 
But in the garden, uh, that was not the case. They were already part of the kingdom of God. There was no sin in the picture, no need for redemption until after the fall. So kingdom exists before the church. The church comes later. Um, uh, narrowly speaking, broadly speaking, you can of course say, well, the church has always been there uh, because it's God's people. So, but narrowly speaking, what do you need to be a member of the church? Repent and believe, right? Uh, and, and your kids, because they are part of the covenant, they belong to the church. Uh, but in this case, the kingdom of God is already there. There was no fall, there was no redemption, there was nothing yet, and still uh, God has a people to himself. Uh, later on, kingdom of God is at first contained in the form of a family cleanse. Uh, we know the concept is still there because the warning of God's promises to his people remain the same, although sin is in the picture. So uh, think about Genesis 1.28 that I just read, and then listen to Genesis 12.2 and 3. And I will make of you a great nation. Uh, what does that mean? Multiplication, right? Uh, um, there is a fertile nature for Abraham where he's going to have many, many children, so many that they will become a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and uh, him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So from here, we get the idea that first of all, Abraham will become a kingdom, a nation. Nation is just a modern rendering, but a kingdom. And this kingdom that God is going to establish through the family of, of Abraham is going to bless the whole earth. Again, think about it. Not Abraham's uh, blessing doesn't say, uh, and I, I, I will make your name great so that you will be a spiritual blessing and only a spiritual blessing, nothing else. And um, those who bless you, I guess that's okay. Those who curse you, I guess you will have to put up with that. Um, and uh, the families of the earth, they can go to hell because I don't care about them. And, uh, and don't worry about that. As long as you have your soul happy and in me, you are okay. That's not what it says. In fact, there is this language of a blessing to the families of the whole earth. So there is more than just Abraham in view here. Uh, kingdom is bigger in that respect than just a family clan. And then think about Genesis 15, 5 and 6. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So uh, be fruitful and multiply in the garden. And God now in the fall, I will be, make you fruitful. I will multiply you. So God is still in the business of bringing forth image bearers to this earth. They will increase and the nations will be blessed in Abraham's offspring. Then the family clan, the small little group, think about it, like Abraham has one son, Isaac, Isaac has one son, Jacob, Jacob has two, and then they have 12, right? And it's like, eh, not, not much. But then what happens later on after 400 years of slavery, numbers, numbers one, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. What is that? It's Genesis language, right? God is still increasing his people, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And then Exodus 19, 
Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Uh, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Notice again verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Uh, who is the king of that kingdom? God himself. And who is going to serve the king in that, in that kingdom? The Israelites. Right. Uh, curious note: the very same wording and language is picked up by First Peter chapter two, uh, where Peter says, "But you are a holy priesthood; you are like the the royal priesthood." So, who? What are Christians? We are priests to God's uh, uh, in God's kingdom, where He is the King. So, kingdom of God again is right there. A kingdom of God for a long period of time becomes enclosed in the shape of the Israelite kingdom. It was necessary in order for the kingdom of God to unleaven everything in the world. Um, the promises made to the patriarch, patriarchs here speak about the universal scope of the kingdom. Israel, in other words, is not the end. If you are reading to the prophet, reading the prophets all the time, they are going like uh, a kingdom is going to come. And, and the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. So they are, not, they are not saying a Messiah will come and he will crush the Romans and only the Romans. And, and we Jews are going to become like a worldwide um, nation who will conquer everyone. No one will um, make fun of our noses anymore because God is going to crush them very quickly. Um, that's not what it says. That's not what the prophets, and we will see what the prophets have to say, uh, are saying. So the, spoke, the, the scope excuse me, of the kingdom of God uh, from the beginning of, of its inception is universal. We already saw that in Genesis, is the whole creation. We saw that with Abraham, seeks to encompass the whole of the earth. We already, and we are seeing that even with the kingdom of Israel, is momentarily. God didn't call Israel in order to make it uh, a nation forever, as if they were always uh, be there. Uh, that is not the case. In fact, in fact, Paul says there is no more Jew nor Gentile. So clearly, the Israelite um, experiment uh, was was just temporal. Was meant to reflect here on earth something of what is happening up there in heaven. In fact, um, we know it's not meant to last forever because more than once, the king becomes the tool of the devil in Israel and opposes God. I'm reading for, uh, through First and Second Kings right now, and it's so fun. Like uh, Ahab had a son, and Ahab died and ruled over Israel like 40 years or something like that. And then his son, uh, you know, I don't know, Carlos, uh, um, started to rule instead of him, and he did evil in the sights of the Lord after the sins of Jeroboam, and he didn't take the high places and so on. So now the king becomes the tool of the devil. Um, the, the kingdom of God existing in this narrow nationalistic form is temporal. We know that because as soon as the national boundaries are removed, at first because of exile, immediately, immediately, the civil and ceremonial laws of Israel were out of use. Have you thought on that? That is super interesting. 
So think, for example, um, the civil law. Uh, Daniel in Babylon, he's not stunning people. Have you thought on that? That's really interesting. Uh, Daniel is serving in the Persian court, and he is not going around stunning people, stunning Babylonians. Why? They are no longer in Israel. Civil law doesn't apply to them. It's a different reality. They are away from the land. Ceremonial laws either. Uh, the Israelites don't have a temple. They don't have sacrifices. Do you know what started to happen because of that? The synagogue. Yeah. The synagogue. So we, we don't see Esther or Ezra or Nehemiah practicing cleansing rituals in Babylon. Uh, what we see them happening is praying all the time. And then uh, Nehemiah and Ezra, uh, they go to the land. They start the temple and everything else. And then the, the sacrifices come back. The cleansings come back. Everything comes back because there is a temple. When there is no temple, nothing of that works. Isn't that cool? And, and um, it answers many of, of the questions regarding how do we understand uh, the laws of the Old Testament, does it not? Uh, it was temporal. It was meant to be there just for a time, not to be perpetuated forever. Uh, look at Daniel 4 here. At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belshazzar, after the name of my God, um, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. What is cool about this portion, I hope you picked on that, is that there is nothing more pagan than everything that Daniel is doing. Uh, he is the chief of the magicians. Uh, so there is that. His name, can you imagine? Like my name is Christian, means little, Christ, little Christian, literally. Can you imagine uh, my name being changed to, um, I don't know, Beelzebub? And I have to be okay with that because there is a foreign power over me. And, uh, and suddenly, your external religion disappears because it becomes the internal religion, That's which, that which Babylon cannot change. Um, and even then, um, if you were to read later on the interpretation, I found very interesting uh, that the ESV translates the interpretation as, a God who is in heaven has revealed these things to you. I'm like, wow, that's interesting. Um, I, I still need to check the Hebrew for that translation. Uh, but I found that super interesting. Daniel would have been stoned in Israel, in, 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 the, in the national Israel, uh, by, by other people. Not here, though. Different situation. He's not denying his faith. He is not... Uh, uh, acting like the pagans. We know that because later on uh, he, he is praised by his good doing and everything. And when he's asked to deny his God, what, what does it happen with Daniel? He goes, opens the, opens the windows and goes and prays. 
So he's not an unfaithful guy, but he's not acting under uh, civil and ceremonial laws anymore. Uh, so clearly, this is not meant to be forever. Exile changes things. Even worship is changed because of exile. Uh, finally, the prophets are constantly calling, looking forward to the realization of God's perfect kingdom here on earth. And in those visions, the scope is bigger than just Israel. Uh, Isaiah 60, which is one of my favorite ones. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people, the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Epa. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and the, like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me. The ships of Tarshish first to bring your children from, from afar their silver and gold with them for the name of the Lord your God and for your Holy One of Israel because he has made you beautiful. Um, here's what I like about this passage. It's not saying um, only Israel will be blessed. It's saying the nations will come. Uh, those guys from Sheba, those are Ethiopians and they will come like dancing with their things, their, their, their cultural artifacts that they create, the, the ships from Tarshish with, with their amazing boats and, and ships and everything coming to praise the Lord because he has given them redemption. So clearly, kingdom of God is not limited to the Israelite kingdom. Uh, Daniel 2, 44, 45. Um, and in the days of those kings, uh, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. Do you know who that rock is? Jesus. And when he comes, he destroys every single kingdom. Why? Because he established his own. That's why Jesus comes to the Jews and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has arrived. It means the king is here. The kingdom is here. I am the rock who will destroy every single kingdom. So kingdom is now. The kingdom, however, is specifically tied to a person, what I already said, um, from the tribe of Judah. And we don't have time to read all of those passages. Um, sorry. Um, during the period of silence, the apocrypha reading of the Messiah and the kingdom continued their development, but it was an inferior of an inferior quality. The Messiah acquired a nationalistic tone, and kingdom of God concept continued confined to the nation. In other words, you had Jews saying, "Let us make Israel great again." Again. Um, and, and God is only for us, not for those dirty Romans. So when Jesus speaks of kingdom of heaven coming near, he simply is echoing a hope that has been there from the beginning. Jews understand what he is saying. They know now is the time 
Now the kingdom has arrived. Now God will bring redemption to us. They just ignored the fact that it was not a warrior um, in the normal sense of the word uh, king. He was not going to uh, kill the Romans. In fact, he brought his kingdom by extending salvation to those very same guys. Like the most shocking thing about the uh, kingdom of God in the, in the Gospels, especially in Matthew, is that he's healing in Matthew 13 a guy, and then he is going to heal a servant of a centurion. Is there anything more shocking? Like a centurion asking God, the king, to have mercy on him. Jesus could have said, go to hell. Like you are a pagan. You don't deserve anything. And yet, no, Jesus is marveled at his faith. That's amazing. What is that? The promises of God. The kingdom has come. So kingdom and, and church. Here is where um, we see some preliminary conclusions. Uh, when we compare working concepts of the church and the kingdom and looking into scriptures and their development of the idea of kingdom, we can avoid but think that kingdom is clearly a bigger circle than the church is. Um, this is why I said last week, I think, that uh, the language for uh, two kingdoms is always confusing and is not helpful because in the scriptures, kingdom is a bigger concept. If you want to confine kingdom of God to the church, then that's not helpful. Um, that is going to confuse a lot of things. Um, what is God going to do with his creation? How do we read um, Revelation 21 and 22? Is there going to be recreation or destruction? No, excuse me, renovation or destruction and recreation. So it's, it's not helpful. Church is uh, the departing point of the kingdom, though. Uh, kingdom of God starts in the church and then moves away uh, as, as we go to the world. Kingdom is the realm that reaches everything. Kingdom is all-encompassing. It's a realm, a space, in which the citizens of the kingdom live. Uh, that's why uh, two kingdoms language is not helpful. Uh, if we are citizens of the kingdom, to identify the kingdom only with its citizens will be uh, a crass error. Think about when you go to Europe, visit Europe, and you go, yeah, I'm the United States of America. They're like, no, you are a citizen. You're an American. No, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the nation. And they will be like, ah, these Americans. <laughs> the church is a colony of heaven here on earth. In that sense, the church is not, uh, not all-encompassing. Church life is alien life. It comes to you from heaven, from a different place. Uh, kingdom, however, is a leaven in power. It occupies everything. It rejects nothing. Whatever it comes in contact with is absorbed and cleansed from sin and becomes part of the kingdom. Nothing is to be despised. No human calling, vocation in itself is in inherently evil. Why? Because God made everything good. Sin is not a substance. Remember that. I know that's a big, a big word. But sin was not created. Sin is a distortion. And when God, God's grace comes, he restores everything. So <clears throat> that's why kingdom of God can come and restore everything. Restores your uh, working place. You are not the same anymore. Your relationships, everything. Um, kingdom of God doesn't go and say, 
well, you know what? You're a Christian now, but you can beat up your wife. That's okay. This is, doesn't touch, the kingdom of God doesn't touch your marriage. Like what? That'll be cause for discipline. Um, all right. Well, um, this is the first installment on church and kingdom. Hope you enjoy it. I'm not going to ask if you have questions. We can talk later on about it because we are uh, past our time, but let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, the kingdom that you have established. And where that kingdom is moving, Lord, help us to always strive for it. And knowing that it's your kingdom, that you are there. We want to be with you so much, Lord. Um, and we thank you that uh, in uh, many respects, we already enjoy that with the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, with us being the new temple. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for that. We pray that you may bless us as we go into your presence and uh, bless us in our worship service in everything we do. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.